When's the last time you made a major mistake? A mistake that jeopardized your life? Many people see their 20s as that period in their life, where they're still sorting through some major feelings. And if only they can survive this period, well, maybe they'll be okay. Sure makes me think of my 20s, my early 20s, and maybe a little bit into my late 20s. Welcome back, everyone. This week, we have Elizabeth McCracken on the show. Elizabeth McCracken is the author of seven books, Here's Your Hat, Where's Your Hurry, The Giant's House, Niagara Falls All Over Again, An Exact Replica of a Figment of My Imagination, Thunderstruck and Other Stories, Bowl Away, and the forthcoming collection of short stories, The Souvenir Museum. Thunderstruck and Other Stories won the 2015 Story Prize, and she's received grants and fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Liguria Studies Center, the American Academy in Berlin, the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, and the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. She'll be reading her short story, It's Not You, accompanied by an original Storybound remix with Moonhound. Hi, I'm Elizabeth McCracken. You're listening to Storybound. Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Pod Glomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. You are about to enter the year 1993 at the Narcissus Hotel, where a young woman is staying. She's 29 exploring her drunkenness alone with a bottle of bourbon. were different in those days. You could smoke in them. The rooms had bathtubs where you could also smoke. You didn't need a credit card or identification that you might be made to sign the register so later the private detective, just like that, were in a black and white movie, though I speak only of the long ago days of 1993, track you down. Maybe you anticipated the private detective and wrote down an assumed name. Nobody was looking for me. I didn't use an assumed name, though I wasn't myself. I'd had my heart broken, or so I thought. I had been shattered in a collision with a man, or so I thought. And I went to the fabled pink hotel just outside the Midwestern town where I lived, the Narcissus Hotel. It sat on the edge of a lake and admired its own reflection. Behind, an ersatz lake, an amoebic swimming pool, now drained, empty lounge chairs all around. January 1st, cold, 
but not yet debilitating. In my suitcase, I'd bought one change of clothing, a cosmetic bag, a bottle of Jim Beam, a plastic sack of Granny Smith apples. I thought this was all I needed. My plan was to drink bourbon and take baths and feel sorry for myself. Paint my toenails, maybe. Shave my legs. My apartment had only a small fiberglass shower I had to fit myself into, as though it were a science fiction pod that transported me to nowhere, but cleaner. I would watch television, too. And there was a certain level of weeping that could be achieved only while watching TV, I'd discovered, self-excoriating with a distant laugh track. I wanted to demolish myself, but I intended on surviving the demolition. It wasn't the collision that had hurt me. It was that the other party who'd apologized and explained a catalog of deficiencies, self-loathing, and unsuitability for any kind of extended human contact had three weeks later fallen spectacularly and visibly in love with a woman and they could be seen, seen by me, necking in the public spaces of the small town. The coffee shop, the bar, before the movie started at the movie theater. I was young then. We all were, but not so young that public necking was an ordinary thing to do. We weren't teenagers, but grown-ups. Late 20s in my case, early 30s in theirs. New Year's Day in the Narcissus Hotel. The lobby was filled with departing hangovers and their owners. Paper hats fell with hollow pops to the ground. Everyone winced. You couldn't tell whose grip had failed. Nothing looked auspicious. That was good. My New Year's resolution was to feel as bad as I could in highfalutin privacy then leave the tatters of my sadness behind with the empty bottle and six apple cores. How long will you be with us? asked the spoon-faced, red-headed woman behind the desk. She wore a brass name tag that read Eileen. It will only seem like forever, I promised. One night. She handed me a brass key on a brass fob. Hotels had keys in those days. I had packed the bottle of bourbon, the apples, my cosmetic bag, but had forgotten a nightgown. Who was looking? I built my drunkenness like a fire, patiently, enough space so it might blaze. You shall know a rich man by his shirt. And so I did. Breakfast time in the breakfast room. The decor was old, but kept up. Space age, with stiff Sputnikoid chandeliers. Dark pink leather banquettes, rosy pink carpets. Preposterous, but wonderful. 
I'd eaten there in the past. It had a dessert cart upon which they wheeled examples of their desserts to your table. A slice of cake, a creme brulee, a flat apple tart that looked like a mademoiselle's hat. I had my own hangover now, not terrible, a wobbling threat that might yet be kept at bay. I had taken three baths. My toenails were vampy red. I'd watch television till the end of broadcast hours, which was a thing that happened then. Footage of the American flag waving in the breeze, then here be monsters. In my other life, the one that happened outside of the Narcissus Hotel, I worked in the HR department of a radio station. I lived with voices overhead. That was why I didn't have a television. It would have been disloyal. I'd found a rerun on a VHF station of squabbling siblings and then had wept for hours in the tub, on one double bed, then the other. Even then, I knew I wasn't weeping over anything actual that I'd lost, but because I'd wanted love and did not deserve it. My soul was deformed. It couldn't bear weight. The rich man sat at the back of the breakfast room in one of the large horseshoe booths built for public canoodling. His pale green shirt, starched, flawless, seemed to have been not ironed but forged, his mustache tended by money and a specialist. His glasses might have cost a lot, but 20 years before. In his 50s, I thought. In those days, 50s was the age I assigned people undeniably older than me. I never looked at anyone and guessed they were in their 40s. You were a teenager, or my age, or middle-aged, or old. The waiter went to the man's table and murmured. The man answered. At faces, I am no good, but I always recognize a voice. Dr. Benjamin, I said, once the waiter had left. He looked disappointed with an expression that said, here of all places. With a nod, he recognized my recognition. I listened to you, I told him. He had an overnight advice show, 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. on another a.m. channel, not mine. He had a beef bourguignon voice and regular callers. Stuart from Omaha. Allison from Asbury Park, New Jersey. Linda from Chattanooga. Thank you, he said, then added, if that's the appropriate response. I'm in radio too, I said. Not talent, HR. The waiter stood by my table, a tall young man with an old-fashioned Cesar Romero mustache. When I looked at him, he smiled and revealed a full set of metal braces. I will have the fruit plate, I said. Then, as though it meant nothing to me, an afterthought, and a Bloody Mary. It is the fear of judgment that keeps me behaving most of the time, like the religious, not of God, but of strangers. Hair of the dog, the radio shrink said to me. Hair of the werewolf, I answered. You could be. On air, you have a lovely voice. 
In my head, I kept a little box of compliments I'd heard more than once. I had nice hair, wavy, strawberry blonde, a nice skin, and a lovely voice. I didn't believe the compliments, particularly at such times in my life, but I liked to keep them for review, as my mother reviewed the scrapbooks from her childhood in a small town where her every move, going to England on a trip, performing in a play in the next town over, made the local paper. Who in this story do I love? Nobody. Myself, a little. Oh, the waiter, with his diacritical mustache and his armored teeth. I love the waiter. I always love the waiter. The music in this episode was sampled from the song The Shallows by Moonhound. And now for a quick commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Elizabeth McCracken and Moonhound. And now we return from our break. The Bloody Mary had some spice in it that sent a tickle through my palate into my nose. Prickle, a yearning, an itch, a gathering, sneezish sensation. One in ten Bloody Marys did this to me. I always forgot. I took another drink and the feeling intensified. Beneath the pressure of the spice was a layer of leftover intoxication which the vodka perked up. I thought, not for the first time, that I had a sixth sense and it was called drunkenness. No good, the radio shrink asked me. What? You're making a terrible face. It's good. But the sensation was more complicated than that. What are you doing in this neck of the woods? Is it a neck? He touched his own neck with the tips of his fingers. I like the rooms here. You probably have a nicer room than I do. The presidential suite, the honeymoon. I'm neither the president nor a honeymooner. Those are the only suites I know, I said. It was possible to be somebody else in a hotel. I was slipping into a stranger's way of speaking. I said, far from Chicago. Far from Chicago, he agreed. He picked up his coffee cup in both hands as though it were a precious thing, though it was thick china, the kind you'd have to hurl at a wall to break. Business, he said at last. You? I live here. You live in the hotel? In town. Oh, you're merely breakfasting, not staying. I'm staying, I said. I started to long for a second Bloody Mary, as though for an old friend who might rescue me from the conversation. Somebody was mean to me, I said to the radio shrink. I decided to be kind to myself. He palmed the cup and drank from it, then settled it back in the saucer. The green shirt was a sickening color against the pink leather. It's a good hotel for heartbreak. Join me, he said, in his commercial break voice, deeply intimate, meant for thousands, maybe millions of people. 
There were other radio hosts in those days, also called doctors who would yell at you. A woman who said to heartbroken husbands, you better straighten up and fly right. A testy man, no, 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 listener, he called his listeners listener. Listener, this is your wake up call. But Dr. Benjamin practiced compassion with that deep voice and his big feelings. Once you forgive yourself, you can forgive your mother, he would say. Perhaps it was the other way around. Your mother first, then you. He told stories of his own terrible decisions. Unlike some voices, his had ballast and breadth. For some reason, I had pictured him as bald in a bow tie. I pictured all male radio hosts as bald and bow tied until presented with evidence to the contrary. Instead, he had a thatch of silver hair, the expensive shirt, cowboy boots. I listened to his show all the time because I hated him. I thought he gave terrible advice. He believed in God and tried to convince other people to do likewise. Sheila from Hoboken, Anne from Nashville, Patrick from Daly City. On the radio, it didn't matter where you lived, small town or the suburbs or New York City, though nobody from New York City ever called Dr. Benjamin. You had the same access to the phone lines and radio waves. You were allowed to broadcast your loneliness to the world in the hours between 11 p.m. through 3 a.m. Central Standard Time. Every so often, a caller started to say something that promised absolute humiliation, and I would have to fly across the room to snap the radio off. My husband cannot satisfy me, Doc. So long ago. I can't remember faces, but I can remember voices. I can't remember smells, but I remember in all its dimensions the way I felt in those days. The worst thing about not being loved, I thought then, was how vivid I was to myself. Now I am loved, and in black and white. The music you're hearing in this episode was sampled from the song All Our Flaws by Sonia. And now for our final break. You are listening to Storybound with Elizabeth McCracken. And now we return for our final chapter. Up close, he seemed vast, Paul Bunyany, as though he'd drunk up the contents of that swimming pool to quench his thirst, though he didn't look quenched. Those outdated glasses had just a tinge of purple to the lenses. Impossible to tell whether this was fashion or prescription, something to protect his eyes. His retinas, I told myself. He was all the way at the bottom of the hoop of the horseshoe, his body at an angle. I sat at the edge of the booth to give him room. He said, better? Maybe, I said. Are you a real doctor? He stretched then, the tomcat, his arms over his head. His big steel watch slipped down his wrist. 
Sure. You're not. I'm not a medical doctor, he allowed. I know that, I said. Then yes, yes, I'm a doctor. The table had an air of vacancy. He'd eaten his breakfast and it had been tidied away, except for the vest pocket bottles of ketchup and Tabasco sauce and a basket filled with tiny muffins. I took one, blueberry, and held it to the light. The waiter delivered a Bloody Mary I hadn't ordered unless by telepathy. You have a PhD, I said. Yes. It's strange. Did I have a PhD? That we call people who study English for too long the same thing we call people who perform brain surgery. Oh, dear, he said. Psychology, not English literature. I'd like to see your suite. He shook his head. Why not? I'm married. You know that. I did. Her name was Eveline. He mentioned her all the time. He called her Eveline Robinson, the love of my life. That's not what I mean, I said, and I tore the little muffin in half, because maybe it was what I meant. No, I told myself. Every time I walked down a hotel hallway, I peered into open doors. Was there a better room behind this door? A better view out the window of the room? Out of all these dozens of rooms, where would I be happiest? By which I meant least like myself. I only wanted to see all the hotel rooms of the world, all the other places I might be. I was waiting to be diagnosed. You're a nice young woman, but you won't cut yourself a break. All right. Okay, we can go to my suite. They've probably finished making it up. Even the hallways were pink and red, the gore and frill of a Victorian valentine, one of those mysterious valentines with a pretty girl holding a guitar-sized fish. The suite was less garish, less whorehouse, less rubescent, with a crystal chandelier, that timeless symbol of one's money's worth. The two sofas were as blue and buttoned as honor guards. A mint green stuffed rabbit sat in a pale salmon armchair. What's that? I asked. He looked at it as though it were a girl who'd snuck into his room and had taken off all her clothes. And here came the question, throw her out or not? Present. Who from? Not from, for. Somebody else. Somebody who failed to show up. A child? He shook his big head. Not a child. She must have lost her nerve. She was supposed to be here yesterday. Maybe she realized you were the kind of man who'd give a stuffed bunny to a grown woman. He regarded me through the purple glasses. Amethyst, I thought. My birthstone. Soon, I would be 28. You are young to be so unkind. She collects stuffed animals. He turned again to the rabbit and seemed to lose heart. This is supposed to be a good one. What makes a good one? Collectible. 
but also it's pleasant. He plucked it from the chair and hugged it. Pleasant to hug. Careful, I said. It's probably worth more uncuddled. I put myself on the chair where the rabbit had been. I don't know why I thought the chair might still be warm. He sat in one of the corners of the sofa closest to me. I thought you might be her, but you're not old enough. How old are you? 27. Not nearly old enough. It's not my fault. Do I look like her? Oh, I mean, I'm not sure. He made the rabbit look out the window, and so I looked, too. But the shears were closed, and all I perceived was light. Options. I take your options. A listener, I said, a caller. You're meeting somebody. Linda from Chattanooga. Not Linda from Chattanooga. Always wrong. He put the rabbit next to him, as though aware of how silly he had looked. Dawn from Baton Rouge. I couldn't remember Dawn from Baton Rouge. What does she look like? I only know what she tells me. Should have asked for a picture. He shrugged. But cold feet, so it doesn't matter. And now you've invited me instead, I said and crossed my legs. Oh, God, no, no, darling. I was aware then of what I was wearing. A pair of old blue jeans, but good ones. A thin black sweater that showed my black bra beneath. Alluring, maybe, to the right demographic. Slovenly to the wrong one. Sweetheart. He got up from the sofa. It was a complicated job, hands to knees, and a careful raising of the whole impressive structure of him. Now let's have a drink. He went to the minibar, which was hidden in a cherry cabinet and had already been unlocked, already been plundered, already refreshed. Imagine a life in which you could approach a minibar with no trepidation or guilt whatsoever. He lifted a midget bottle of vodka and a pick-me can of Bloody Mary mix. He didn't know I'd only ordered a Bloody Mary because it was acceptable to do so before 10 a.m. He was a man who drank and ate what he wanted at any time of the day. We'll toast to our betrayers. Because it was something he might say to a midnight caller, I said, I thought we only ever betrayed ourselves. Sometimes we look for accomplices. No ice, he said, turning to me. To get through this, we're going to need some ice. For a moment, it felt as though we were in jail instead of a reasonably nice hotel, sentenced to live out our days, another way to say, hurdle towards death. In those days, it was easy to disappear from view. All the people who caused you pain You might never know what happened to them, unless they were famous, as the radio shrink was. And so I did know. It happened soon afterwards, before the snow had melted. He died of a heart attack at another hotel. And Eveline Robinson, the love of his life, flew from Chicago to be with him. And a guest took over, and the guest host was the actual host, and it slid from a call-in advice show to a show about unexplained phenomena. UFOs, Bigfoot, 
I suppose it had been about the unexplained all along. All the best advice is on the internet now, anyhow. That person who broke my heart might be a priest by now, or happily gay, or finally living openly as a woman, or married 25 years, or all of these things at once, or 63% of them, as is possible now in our world. It's good that it's possible. A common name plus my bad memory for faces. I wouldn't know how to start looking or when to stop. No way to tell how much later I awoke, face down in the bath, and came up gasping. I had fallen asleep or I'd blacked out. It was as though the water itself had woken me up, not the water on the surface of me, which wasn't enough, not even the water over my face like a hotel pillow, up my nose, in my lungs, but the water that soaked through my bodily tissues, running along fissures, and ruining the texture of things, till it finally reached my heart and all my autonomic system said, enough, you're awake now, you're alive, get out. That was one of the few times in my life I might have died and knew it. I fell asleep in a bathtub at 27. I was dragged out to sea as a small child I spun on an icy road into a break in oncoming traffic on Route 1 north of Rockland, Maine, and miraculously stayed out of the ditch. I did not have breast cancer at 29 when it was explained to me that it was highly unlikely I would, but if I did, it was unlikely. It would be fatal, almost never at your age, but when at your age, rapid and deadly. Those are the fake times I almost died. The real ones, neither you nor I ever know about. The radio shrink would have said, I guess she died of a broken heart, and I would have ended my life and ruined his for no reason. Just a naked, drunk, dead woman in his room who'd got herself naked and drunk and dead. But I wouldn't see the radio shrink again. I was gasping and out of the tub and somebody was knocking on the bathroom door. I don't know why knocking, the door was unlocked, but the water was sloshing under the floor, the tap was on, couldn't have been on all this time, and I would find out it was raining into the bathroom below. I had caused weather, and the radio shrink had packed up and left, but had hung the do not disturb sign on his door and had paid for my room, was gone. Dawn from Baton Rouge was a disembodied voice again, but the red-headed woman from the front desk, Eileen, she was here, slipping across the floor, tossing me a robe, turning off the tap, tidying up my life. You're all right, she said. I could feel her name tag against my cheek. You should be ashamed of yourself, but you're all right now. I would like to say this was when my life changed. No. That game pretty quick, within hours, but not yet. 
I would like to say that the suggestion of kindness took, that I went home and wished everyone well, that I forgave myself, and it was as though my fury at myself was the curse. Forgiveness transformed me, and I became lovely. All that came later, if at all. He was wrong, the shrink. Nothing ever happened to me that made me cry more than I did in those weeks of aftermath. I'm one of the lucky ones. I know that. I became kinder the way anybody does because it costs less and is, nine times out of ten, more effective. Thank you to Elizabeth McCracken for reading. This story can be found in the Best American Short Stories 2020, edited by Curtis Settenfield. And Elizabeth has a book of short stories coming out this April 2022. It's 12 stories about travel, arguments, bodies of water, parenthood, childhood, and marriage, which have been published or are forthcoming in the Best American Short Stories, the Pushcart Prize, the O. Henry Prize Stories, and other places. It's titled The Souvenir Museum, and you can pre-order yourself a copy now at your favorite local bookseller. The song at the start of this episode was by the band Moonhound. Definitely go check them out on Spotify. They're called Moonhound. Thank you to Spitshine Studios in Austin, Texas, and thank you to Epidemic Sound. Our production assistant is Jordan Aaron. Our mixing engineer is Tim Carplus. Editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, and hosting are done by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. You can find us on Twitter or on Instagram at StoryBoundPod, or you can write to me directly on Twitter at Jude Brewery. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you subscribe to the show, and we hope to see you next week. New episodes are every Tuesday. See you then.